Welcome to Encountering Beauty, a series of podcasts brought to you by Masterpiece London. I'm Thomas Marks, editor of Apollo magazine, and in these podcasts we'll be exploring the enduring relevance and resonance of what have long been some of the most revered and versatile materials that artists have had at their disposal. In each conversation I'll be joined by two art dealers who exhibit at the leading art fair that is Masterpiece London, experts in different artistic fields or periods that nevertheless share particular materials between them. We'll explore everything from wood and ceramic to marble and bronze, discussing how artists have handled, worked and transformed these materials and why they're prized by collectors today. In this episode, we're going to be hearing about precious stones, about how artists and patrons have lusted for their luster across civilizations and of how their brilliance has thrilled beholders over centuries. We'll learn how the meanings of different stones have shifted over time and as they've crossed borders, and about how changing techniques of cutting or working with them have added new facets to their appeal. I'm delighted to be joined by Sandra Cronin, one of London's leading antique jewellery specialists, who handles important jewels from the 17th to the early 20th century, and by Keegan Gupfert, Vice President of Les Enlumineurs, New York, Chicago and Paris-based experts in manuscript illumination, and who also focus on rings and jewellery from the medieval and Renaissance periods. It's great to have both of you with me. Thank you. We're delighted to be here. Great to be here. Let, let me start by just asking both of you for an overview of the role that precious stones play in the fields that you specialize in. And also, let's start with this big question for me anyway, which is, do we need to distinguish here between precious and semi-precious stones or other types of categorization? Keegan? Not really. I mean, for us... Though semi-precious and precious stones category, really, there isn't a separation between the two. When we're working with historical rings and jewelry, if it's a Visigothic ring with a garnet in it or a Renaissance diamond ring for us, uh, they both play uh, significant roles in those pieces. So, Keegan, let me ask you before I turn to Sandra, just to give a bit more of a sense of how the multiple fields that Les Enlumineurs deals in cross over and, and in a sense the relationship between the manuscript illumination and, and the jewellery dealership. Well, absolutely. I mean, I started with illuminated manuscripts and Les Enlumineurs are dealers in illuminated manuscripts from the medieval and Renaissance period. And, you know, we always say, why, why do you have medieval rings? Well, they do. They're, I mean, they're meant for the hands and the eyes, they give off information about the person who is wearing or owning the book. They're made out of the same materials. If it's gold and precious or semi-precious stones, it doesn't really matter. Lapis lazuli, gold, malachite, things that were, were expensive and sought after. And they're meant to be handled. I, I think that's one of the important things is holding the ring or holding a manuscript, you have a very, very similar experience. And Sandra, inevitably, you, you're a jewellery expert, but how did you come to precious stones and, and to find jewels in the first place? Well, my family was in the business, in the jewellery business. So I'm second generation, half American, half English. And my father was a dealer in, in America. But I grew up looking at gemstones. He used to bring home 
wonderful examples of a ruby, an emerald, topaz, a citrine, and test me. And I must have been about 12 years old, and I collected minerals and seashells and fossils. So it was a natural progression. And I learned about gemstones before I ever realized that that was the career that I would follow. So what sort of things were you learning as a child about the stones in terms of how to distinguish the different stones from each other, but also the quality of them at that point? The quality and the color. And I think because I also went to art school and color was something that I was fascinated with, and it was really terribly important, he'd show me an emerald and show me several and say, now, which one do you think is the best? So from a terribly early age, I was looking at different stones and being able to distinguish what the best color or the color should be. So um, great gift and a great education. So um, I started from 12. And, and Keegan, you mentioned that you began as a manuscript specialist. Can you single out a stone, as it were, or a work that contains precious stones that really got you excited about them for the first time? That's an easy answer. Sutton who treasure at the British Museum. For me, the craftsmanship, the history, the amazing energy that that treasure gives off and the way it's displayed at the British Museum is spectacular. I mean, hands down. That was my first initial seeing really serious craftsmanship in gold and stones and enamel. But something also that made a big impact me also in London was the Cheapside Hoard. There was just such an incredible exhibition back in 2013, which I think was just so innovative because one of the things you take away is seeing the ultimate variety of jewelry that existed and also reminding visitors and people that we're so used to seeing a ring on the finger and seeing the front of it and seeing the stone, but we miss the detail on the shank or on the interior or the enameling on the back of a pendant. Um, and, and they did such an incredible job displaying it that you could actually see those hidden details. And they really did such a fantastic job. And the publication was also fantastic too. I have to say the Cheapside Hoard, because I went to the opening of that and I was absolutely blown away. They showed it in a way it was hung from fishing wire. So you could literally walk around and see it. It almost moved and you could look and there were mirrors. You could see things underneath. And that was absolutely the most extraordinary exhibition. To think that those things were under the street for a few hundred years in a box. I mean, and people walked by. I mean, I just find that kind of thing really, really so extraordinary and what a magical thing to have found that and it survived. So the next thing I was going to ask you is what gives these stones their enduring appeal, but but is perhaps one of the things that gives them their enduring appeal is how they endure, Sandra? Yes, I mean, how they survived. I mean, the lovely Cabochon emeralds, I mean, there was a lizard with wonderful Cabochon emeralds, but still in most fabulous colour. So the foiling underneath, which would have been minimal, but still, as they were backed, it would have some, was still exactly as it must have been when it was made and it survived. So those sort of things just speak to you in a way that nothing, nothing modern can, I'm afraid. 
Yeah, and also in the cheap side hoard, also the vast variety. You had diamonds and sapphires, but you also had amethyst. You had toadstone. You had emeralds coming from the New World and cameos and taglios from the classical period. And I believe that this is going on permanent display at the Museum of London. Is that is that right, Sandra? I've heard that. I haven't been back down to see it, but I hope so, because that's something I'd love to go and see again. I don't think one never stops learning. So to go and see that a second time since 2013, I will just absolutely be entranced again. I know that. Can we dig in a little more to what it is that entices collectors to these stones? You've already suggested in talking about these wonderful displays of the British Museum and the Museum of London, that obviously the settings and, and the way things are, are worked into jewellery. And, and when you talk about the Cheapside Hoard, you talk about this display, almost like these things became sculptures in some way. But what is it that has attracted people? It's, it's the hardness, the clarity, the transparency, the colour. I mean, when you're speaking of the stones, as far as the hardness, colour and transparency, it's the light and the colour and the setting, the way the gold on the chameleon, on the lizard, the chameleon, the emeralds were set in a way where the gold was worked over it to the degree that it was just the most minuscule amount of gold on the setting on the emerald. But the actual skill to do that is something that we've lost. There is no one today that can sit down and do that. I mean, I have to say, I have a wonderful jeweler who's probably as capable as anybody could be, but you still can't really replicate the things from that period. I mean, you can't. Keegan, the way that people write about in the documentary evidence that we have about precious stones in, say, the medieval period, are they talking about the same qualities that people might specify today when they celebrate these stones? Well, I think we're... As human beings, we're inherently drawn to things that move light and are colorful. I think we've lost a bit of, from the medieval period. Um, you know, the, there was more superstition. There was amuletic purposes for stones. They were incorporated into devotional rings or crosses, you know, put into even bindings, these wonderful gem-covered book bindings. So I think we, today in modern society, we've, we've lost this sort of gauge that they had to have a different type of relationship, feeling, um, definition of what that stone was, if it's a, you know, a garnet or a sapphire or even a diamond. I mean, think of, you know, intaglios or cameos of Greek gods. You know, there was a very different relationship, that person who had that in their pocket or held it in their hand than what collectors uh, are thinking about today when they have it installed in their ring or they have a loose stone that they admire. And I imagine, and Keegan, you'd know more than I would on this, I think they were considered great talismans. So they might keep a stone in a bag in their pocket. And it was just there, really, as a talisman. And people would just have, not a superstition, but they would need it to be with them. That's right. And even in the really high Gothic period, you find many stones that are completely uncut. They're often cabochon stones. 
and they wouldn't cut stones because it's how God intended these stones to be. So you wouldn't manipulate them by cutting. And that's, you know, when you look at the rings that have survived from the 12th, 13th, early 14th century, you find stones that remained intact. And I like that as a sort of a, the archaeologist side, like, like Sandra being obsessed with shells and fossils and stones. And I can understand their feeling. Let me go back just to what Keegan was talking about, about these sort of talismanic or healing or protective qualities of certain stones. And, and of course, different types of stone historically have carried different symbolism in different places. I think of something like the Bell of St. Mura in the Wallace collection, I believe inlaid with rubies to mark the extremities of the cross on what was essentially a portable altarpiece. I suppose what I wanted to ask you, Keegan, was how far you think we need to or we can relearn how to read these stones and and the types of meaning that they, they held for people in the past. I think it's important for us all to engage both as either from a scholarly or a collector or admirer standpoint to engage in their imagination. I think it's difficult to capture. We try as historians to capture the the type of essence of a, of a stone or a particular, I mean, a statue or cathedral. I mean, it's difficult for us to walk in the same footsteps as someone in the Middle Ages and, and have their mindset. But I, I think it's, you know, if it's a tart mold ring from the 13th century that has a, a piece of garnet in it, and you can say that the garnet is is uh, relates the blood of Christ, like as you were talking about with that piece in the Wallace collection, you know, and it has a talismanic purpose. It has a devotional purpose. But for a collector here in the 21st century, there are few and far between that probably are going to relate to it that way. Sandra, I suppose it's around the 18th century and with the, the sort of the dawn of reason in inverted commas that some of these stones begin to lose those perhaps mystical properties, but they gain other properties in a way and, and their value is assigned in different ways at that point. Yes, I mean, I think in the 18th century, they were more recognized for their value as a precious stone, as a diamond, as an emerald, a sapphire, a ruby. And a garnet, of course, would be a ring that was made for someone of a, a lower echelon, not the most upper class or the most aristocratic person. I mean, I think the people that were able to afford the very, very fine jewels set with precious gemstones were the um, wealthier echelon of, you know, whether it was Europe or England, it was a case of then they were distinguishable. But I think, you know, now we look back at the 18th century jewellery, if we can find a piece with the original stone, we're so delighted if it hasn't been tampered with, that we'll forgive many things and, and buy it, whatever the stone is. But of course, the value is higher if it's an emerald ruby, if it's something precious. I mean, I did have, I think, probably the best ring, the early ring I've ever had was a late, mid-17th century. But it was with an octahedron crystal, a diamond, and white enamel and gargoyles on either side that were holding the diamond. And then the underneath was all enameled, again, in black and white, 
with leaves and foliage all the way. So it was completely enameled, 360 degrees. The shank, the head of the ring, the underneath of the ring, it was quite extraordinary. And finally, I did sell it to a collector, but it turned out that it came after quite a bit of research, originally from the Rothschild family in Paris, which was no surprise. And the connections to how I bought it were also interesting. Let's move on to talk about some of the technical challenges that artists and designers have faced in working with precious stones. And indeed, how technological developments in how the stones have been, say, extracted or cut or polished or set have transformed both the aesthetic possibilities of working with them and, I suppose, the value of them. Keegan, the stones that you deal with are mostly cut and polished. What's the What, what are we looking at? Oh, we, we have a really a, a vast array of, of different stones and different cuts. I mean, it's really quite fun because we can have a, you know, rose-cut diamond. We can have a, a cabochon uncut sapphire. You know, we can have emeralds from the classical period. We have a Byzantine ring with the, this creamy, marbly emerald. We can have a Renaissance ring with the emerald coming from the new world that is just clear and perfect and beautiful. So we, we deal with the, the whole gamut. You know, I think cut stones are a lot of fun because they play with light and they increase the clarity and their functionality play into the design of the piece. We had a catalog on, on diamonds uh, from the Benjamin Zucker collection. And that was a collection that Mr. Zucker formed that basically told the story of diamond cutting from octahedral diamonds all the way to the brilliant cut, you know, and that's an incredible story. And it has so much to do with the technical innovation happening in Europe and the ability to cut diamonds. And it happens over many generations to going from these octahedral point cut diamonds where they're basically taking octahedral and cutting it in half to a just a simple table cut diamond, then to a rose cut where they start taking sort of the edges off. And uh, then to the brilliant cut that probably, you know, are being worn on fingers today because they, it, you know, it epitomizes the, the ability for this diamond to open up and explode with light and color, that white hot color. I, I wish we had video on our podcast, Keegan, so that so that our listeners could uh, see you dan- dancing your way through some of the different historical cuts. Oh, thank you. Sandra, just going back to the question about the technical challenges. Uh, I mean, in, in the period that you specialize in, what have been really some of the, the great technical developments that have just transformed what is possible with stones? Well, I think... Those happened gradually and a lot more radically in the early part. Whereas when you get to sort of something, you know, from 1900 onwards, they were cutting stones. I mean, diamonds, they were also opening the culet of a stone, cutting off the point at the bottom because it allowed the light to come in and refract and go back out, which people feel is a very innovative thing to have done. And it is wonderful. But if you actually as a person that's a collector or a passionate connoisseur, you look at something and the closed culet is so much more beautiful. So although they've technically enhanced the ability of light to refract in and out, to me, 
that's actually not more beautiful. That's where they say technology is an advancement, whereas I would say it's actually not. Yeah, I think sometimes we want to keep it simple. Simple can just really transcend something that is overly technically perfect. You know, some of the best rings that Laser Luminaire has ever had are some of the simplest rings. That is just, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's like a cheese sandwich. It's very satisfying and it's perfect. And it's just two slices of bread and butter and cheese. And it could be a ring from Byzantium. It could be a ring from, you know, Renaissance Italy. It's just those really simple forms joined together with a beautiful diamond or stone can just be better than any engagement ring that I walk down here on Oak Street in Chicago and see in the window. I mean, just so much better. We've talked quite a lot about how stones end up set and how they end up as elements in jewellery. Can we just flip the whole discussion on its head for a couple of minutes and think about where they come from? Because obviously... Keegan, you've mentioned a few stones that have been precious because they had come originally from the New World. And we know that on the whole, we don't walk down the street and find sort of diamonds on the pavement. Uh, They have to be mined, they have to be extracted, and, and they have come from many different places, many of these stones in the world. How important is that in is the provenance of those stones and i mean the places of the extraction particularly to to both of your work and have conversations about the sources of stones become more important for collectors in, in recent years would you say keegan we're not de beers so we don't have to really deal with the political and uh, problems of maybe collecting rings from certain countries and poverty, et cetera. I mean, we have to look at it historically, right? I mean, we're dealing with things that were collected hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So, I mean, obviously something like a diamond where, I mean, most of these were coming through the trade routes from from Asia. And there are many sources for various stones. Diamonds coming famously from places like Golconda in, in India, and sapphires from from Persia, from Iran, from, you know, the Himalayas, Afghanistan. We think of, like, you know, if you're interested in in jewelry, you have to, you know, that the sources are are wide, but usually far away from Europe. (laughs) They have to travel great distances. And I brought up earlier emeralds and, you know... Kashmir for sapphires. Yeah, true. Yes, yeah. So, you know, it's not something that we honestly don't have to, you know, I don't really have to bring up as much. I mean, I think it, a diamond traveling from India or from the New World or for collectors, you know, that's, that's part of its story. And that certainly is important uh, to understand where they're sourced from. But like I said, reiterating, we, we don't necessarily have to deal with some of the problems in, in modern jewelry when we're dealing with antique collectibles. I mean, I agree with you because we don't really have to either accept when somebody does want an engagement ring and it wants they want a diamond, but we generally buy only old stones because the market in the secondhand market is so much less expensive that one doesn't go through the De Beers sites that they're selling diamonds to various people. So it almost yeah. isn't relevant to us either. 
that's also I'd say too. I often more and more I get. Well, does the stone has it been? Does it have a GIA certificate? Um, can you give me the rating of the stone? And it's, well, no, I can't because you know this is a historical piece, and we're not going to take. We'd have to jeopardize the piece by removing the stone out of it, and we're just not willing to do that. I mean, obviously, we have everything tested. You know, it's it's easy to do that and verify that this is a diamond, but I can't give you a grading. I mean, unfortunately, but I think that is irrelevant to the piece. If it's, you know, it's, it's a historic, it's, it's come together. It's survived. And it's special. You're not going to see anyone wearing this down the street. You know, really, these are really such unique pieces. I mean, I think it's totally irrelevant to the wonderful early things that you deal in completely irrelevant. And anyone that really asks a question like that doesn't, really glean what it's about whereas i'm afraid i am in the situation whereas if we have a diamond we've had many but they are even if they're a diamond from 1920 or 30 we still have to get or produce a certificate as far as the quality and color i mean not always because if a wonderful old cushion cut comes up and we bought them we love them it's not so relevant but it's still you know, if you're talking about 10, 20, 30,000 pounds, it's very relevant as far as the color. And most people these days have been brainwashed that they need a certificate. And so we get them for most stones for that reason. Leaving aside certification, in terms of collectors who might be shopping for objects with precious stones, what would be the evidence of the eyes for things that people should look out for in terms of condition? I think it's something that catches your eye. You really want to look at it closely. And with most people that come to me, I show them how to use a loop. I give them mine. And I say, this is important that you look at the ring, the stone, closely. And I educate them because I believe the best thing is to educate your client. Then you can say, look at this. There's a tiny mark and here and you point out where and you can show them where and they can see what they're buying and I'll, I'll say this becomes a vs1 because of this tiny minute blemish but when it gets to be something much stronger like an si stone we generally we don't have them because i do find those are a little bit too well i just object to that and i think it's not a good thing to buy but a VS stone with an inclusion with a tiny mark, I'll show the client with a loop, teach them how to use it and say, this is important. You must know what you're buying. And then to show them the pros and the cons of everything. Yeah, I agree with Sandra 100%. I mean, for us, it's, it's when you're a collector, number one advice, work with a dealer, competent dealer, knows what they're doing, who's specialized. And it's, part, it's a process. And you learn together. And it's, you know, these relationships you build with the collector who really is into a specific field. It's a journey of learning. And at Laser Luminier, I mean, we are, I mean, you have to sit down and teach, you know, it's a process. It's like school and it's fun. <laughs> I think, you know, I, 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 it's building relationships and you know what is we never stop learning. So is, you know, and what I love too is people see things differently. And we, this happens in the manuscript part 
of Laison Lumineer where you can look at a book of hours a hundred times and someone will look at it the first time ever and see something that you completely missed. And it's the same with, with a ring or a piece of jewelry. They, you know, it's great to have different eyes on a piece because they see things a little differently. On that note, let me say thank you to Sandra Cronin and Keegan Gobfert for sharing their expertise. A great pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Encountering Beauty, a podcast brought to you by Masterpiece London. Masterpiece Online takes place from the 23rd to the 27th of June and will return to the Royal Hospital Chelsea in the summer of 2022. Head to www.masterpiecefair.com for more information. 